Hello and welcome to Look Around You, Public Health Matters. Joining Ibrahim and me today are Sam Waddell and Gabrielle Shabazz. Uh, Sam, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hi, everyone, and thank you, Dr. Benjamin, for being here. My name is Sam Waddell, and I am a first-year MPH student here at Case Western Reserve University, and my concentration is population health research. Thanks, Gabrielle. Good morning, and again, Dr. Benjamin, thank you for being here. My name is Gabrielle Shabazz. I am a second-year MPH student here at Case Western, pursuing a concentration in health promotion and disease prevention. We are so excited for today's discussion. Uh, with us today is Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Benjamin is known as one of the nation's most influential physician leaders because he speaks passionately and eloquently about the health issues having the most impact on our nation today. From his firsthand experience as a physician, he knows what happens when preventive care is not available and when the healthy choice is not the easy choice. As executive director of APHA since 2002, he is leading the association's push to make America the healthiest nation in one generation. He came to APHA from his position as secretary of the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Dr. Benjamin became secretary of health in Maryland in April 1999, following four years as its deputy secretary for public health services. As secretary, Benjamin oversaw the expansion and improvement of the state's Medicaid program. Benjamin of Gaithersburg, Maryland, is a graduate of the Illinois Institute of Technology and the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He is board certified in internal medicine and a fellow of the American College of Physicians, a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, and a fellow emeritus of the American College of Emergency Physicians and an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Public Health. Dr. Benjamin is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and also serves on the boards for many organizations, including Research America and the Reagan Udall Foundation. In 2008, 2014, and 2016, he was named one of the top 25 minority executives in health care by Modern Healthcare Magazine, in addition to being voted among the 100 most influential people in healthcare from 2007 to 2017. Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for being here. Hi, glad to have you. Uh, the first question that we have for you, actually, let's just dive right into public health as a discipline. We want to talk about uh, first the 10 essential services of public health. And for those listening, um, there, there's a graphic that is sort of like, like a circular pinwheel uh, that has the 10 essential services of public health around it. And in the middle is equity. And previously in the middle was research. Uh, and now it's equity. So we wanted to ask you, uh, what led to the transition from research at the center of the 10 essential services to equity? Uh, and, and how much has that transition influenced the, the 10 essential services themselves? Well, you know, equity was always the uh, bedrock of public health. Um, there's no question that that's always been um, a component of what we do. Um, and in many ways, everything is built on that foundation. Uh, but I think that over the last few years, the, the issues around um, uh, disparities in health, which are becoming more and more visible, even though they've always been there, um, a, a broad recognition that um, of the kinds of things we can do something about. Um, the committee, when they, when they sat around with talking about refreshing uh, the 10 essential services, and they, they really looked at each of those services, um, uh, felt that it was important to center everything around equity. Because at the end of the day, that's the ultimate goal of what we want to do is we want to improve the health and well-being of all of us. But we want to do that in an equitable manner because um, if you don't do it so that everybody's health improves and do it equitably, you really haven't accomplished the things you want to do. 
Um, you may remember before, um, kind of science was in the center, research was, was in the center of that will. Uh, and of course, everything we do um, also has um, a evaluation component, a research component to it. Um, and so they felt it was easy to build that throughout the 10 essential services. Um, and that equity really was the, um, the foundation of public health. And so Dr. Benjamin, following your question, you did mention health disparities and as well on the topic of equity. Um, and I would like to ask, we have recently identified racism as a public health crisis. Um, and though the discussion in the topic um, area of racism is not new um, with the identification of public health as a, um, or racism as a public health crisis, what can the country do? Um, and that may be a very broad question. And so if we just kind of narrow down more so government, um, public health organizations, healthcare systems, what can those organizations do to address racism as a public health crisis, um, just beyond identifying the issue and the actual next steps? Well, you're right. The first question is to, to identify it, though. You know, the people, people still, quite frankly, are afraid of the R word. Um, you know, people think if you, if, you, if you say the word racism that the um, sky will fall in and the earth would open up and will all fall through. And the chance, the truth of the matter is none of that happens um, when you recognize and call something for what it is. Um, and it, it's also a recognition that while there is um, racism where people, you know, personalize it and um, hate one another, and people tend to go to that kind of racism um, where people are purposely undermining um, people's views because of um, their 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 view that they're more superior than another person, um, and. That certainly um, exists and we have to continue to push back against that. But I think the biggest bang for the buck and from a public health perspective is for us to focus like a laser, not, not that we ignore the others, but focus like a laser on structured racism because um, racism um, is a system and it undermines um, uh, everyone. It um, can, um, undermine the health and well-being of the individual groups of individuals that have been, um, that are stigmatized, but it also undermines the folks that are, um, uh, are not. And it actually, uh, in many ways, um, inappropriately advantages one group over another. And in doing so, everybody loses. So I would argue that um, we know that some of these systems were put in place intentionally. We know that some of them are driven by um, people's biases and perceptions of the skills, attributes, and um, you know, competencies of one group of people over another. But of course, as you know, they do that because of who you are and, and what you look like. Um, and that's wrong um, because um, we know that um, race is a, um, a, not really a biological uh, characteristic. It is a sociological one. Um, and that racism is the, um, you know, um, undermining of individuals based on race. And so when you go after structural racism, you're going after the systems that have existed for many years and perpetuate these disadvantages 
that um, that currently exists in our society. Dr. Benjamin, I want to ask you about how has the APHA tackled the challenges of transforming work remotely or online because of the COVID pandemic? Um, in what way has the APHA shifted to address COVID-19 pandemic as well as many of the systematic inequalities where we were, which were exposed during the pandemic? Well, you know, I was, um... I'm I'm a, I'm a, uh, a a person who wasn't quite into um, telework. Um, we had a telework policy which I put in place. We allow people to telework a couple of days a week. Um, you know, I um, I do believe in um, the ability to collaborate and for people to talk to one another. And I think there's enormous value about just being able to get up from your desk and walk down the hallway and bang on someone's door put your head in their cubicle um, and solve a problem um, or share some information. Uh, so being together in the workplace is, is I believe a very important um, um, activity, particularly for an organization whose work is around collaboration, right? Um, spontaneous collaboration sometimes gives you amazing results. And of course we lost the opportunity to do that when COVID uh, hit and we um, all were forced to, um, you know, leave the offices and go home. Uh, and, uh, but we were able to do that. Um, the fact is that we had, uh, we very quickly were able to uh, move to um, technological platforms which allow us to communicate to one another, um, to continue to collaborate. We had to plan those collaborations and that took some time. Um, I think that we'd always, of course, been communicating with our members over the years through um, email, social media. We have one of the largest social media platforms in the country with over a million followers um, across our various platforms. So we were always able to communicate to the public and to our members through the various systems that we had. Um, but the challenge we had was um, figuring out how to work more effectively as a team um, from our homes. And, um, you know, I just have an amazing group of people that work at APHA and they were able to figure it out. And we were, you know, we schedule meetings. Um, today we have an all staff meeting, for example, um, which is on Zoom, um, so it's remotely. I think some of the biggest things that we have, um, we were challenged with, for example, the annual meeting. Um, and of course, you know, APHA's annual meeting um, has two amazing attributes. In, in addition to being a huge meeting, uh, it's great science, great information, and um, but a lot of people come for the networking. Um, you know, you can stand in the hallway at the APHA annual meeting and do a week's work, worth of work in an hour because everybody who you need to talk to walks past your, where you're standing at some point um, 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 doing the meeting. And so you're able to do that. And we lost the ability to do that. But we still had a, we had a great scientific meeting. We did have some networking sessions that we planned. Networking on Zoom is not the same as networking face-to-face. -face. Uh, so, um, but it was a good meeting. We had over 9,000 people that were able to participate uh, in the meeting, um, but it took some work. You know, we had to figure out what, what technology platform to use. We had to practice it a lot. We had to get um, over a thousand presenters um, um, indoctrinated on how to use the system. 
good news is everybody was kind of using a Zoom-like system or some other um, remote learning system. So people had some technological experience with the various ways of doing that. Um, but we also had to produce a journal. We also had to produce um, textbooks. We uh, also had to uh, have board meetings and meetings of our governing council. And, you know, we quite frankly um, put our heads together and we were able to, to figure out how to do that. I think that one of the things that, you know, things will never be the way they were two years ago. Uh, we're going to be in a different world. We're going to be doing a lot more remote learning, a lot more webinars, a lot more um, distant learning meetings. The, the days in which you flew across country to have a, a two-hour meeting um, and then fly back, those days are over. You know, those are going to be Zoom meetings. Um, the, the days when you had a, uh, a workforce or a task force you put together and you brought people together for the plan, you know, for the introductory organizational meeting. Those most likely are going to be do, done remotely, you know, where people introduce themselves to one another. Um, if they have a conflict of interest statement they have to make when they um, um, when they're organizing the meeting, that stuff will probably happen. And so you'll have shorter meetings uh, online. Um, I also and then when people want to come together for maybe a couple of days uh, at a time to actually have a meeting. Um, they're going to, they're gonna, you know, to be face to face in a room. I think a lot of the preliminary stuff that we used to um, do will, um, will have taken place. And um, you'll see a lot more um, efforts where people will send you pre-written material and people will be expected to come up to speed on the material that was sent. And uh, then they um, um, maybe hopefully have more intense Discussions, not of the not of the material, but of the of the content of the issue. So I think I think the engagement that we're going to have in some ways are going to be enriched by our ability to have these multiple methods to engage one another, including the remote environment. Thank you, Dr. Benjamin. I have a question. So you mentioned a lot of the challenges that we faced as public health professionals during COVID-19. And I was wondering what challenges do you see the public health field facing within the next 10 years? Well, I think our most immediate challenge, um, I mean, COVID, it's, we, when the COVID-19 out, you know, outbreak is still there and we, we're not done with this. And it's gonna be around for a while. And we're gonna have many outbreaks uh, from, this, from this terrible tragic disease. Uh, and we're going to have to make sure that people understand that while, yes, we're taking off our masks and yes, we're hopefully all going to get fully vaccinated uh, and we're, we're going back to um, doing our work in a building versus doing our work predominantly online, um, that the infectious threat that we currently have is still here and will be with us for a while. Secondly, none of the threats that we had before the opioid epidemic, the STD epidemic, the epidemic of gun violence, um, domestic violence, child abuse, the challenges that we've had with um, um, antibiotic resistant organisms, um, all of those kinds of things um, did not go away because COVID was here. There has not been a year in which we've not had a new public health threat um, hit our, our, our nation. And so, just we ought to just keep watching. It may be another infectious disease. It may be 
a tragic storm due to climate change. I mean, we don't know what it's going to be. Um, and so we're going to, we, we need to keep our guard up. I, my biggest fear is that uh, people will um, say COVID is, is a one and done. It's a hundred year event and, you know, we don't need to worry about it. And I think the lesson, that would be the wrong lesson to take from this. Uh, we've got hit by a severe disease. Uh, in some ways we got pretty lucky um, because it, it could have still been worse, but people will forget it and they will not want to permanently invest in the public health system. And so one of our, our missions, I believe, is keeping that issue alive, reminding people that um, part of the reason this was so terrible was um, the fact that we really had an underinvested, under-resourced public health system. Um, and its ability to interact with the healthcare system, uh, even, though, even though we've known that was something important for us to do, we're gonna to have to continue to, um, to make that case. So that's, that's a big um, uh, issue for us, both on the financial and advocacy side to make that case to the resource allocators. And then we're gonna have to, again, keep our ears and eyes open. You know, I, as um, um, Andrew pointed out, I was, I was both the health officer in Washington, DC, and I was a health officer in, in the state of Maryland. And um, in DC, the HIV AIDS epidemic, which by the way, hasn't, gone away. We, good news is we converted it to what's in essence a chronic disease. Um, but that epidemic was raging during that time period. Um, and uh, as a health officer, I had a tornado that hit Southern Maryland. I had, we had a drought. We had an outbreak of a new disease called Fisteria. We had the anthrax letters. We had 9-11. We had West Nile virus. Um, and then on, on top of that, we had our usual outbreaks, you know, a measles outbreak here, a pertussis outbreak there, uh, a foodborne outbreak. So the work of public health continues and we have to be prepared to make sure that we can identify any kind of a new or re-emerging threat um, enters our community to evaluate it, to put in place metrics and measures to both measure our outcomes, but contain it. Uh, and then do the look back and figure out how we prevent it from happening again. And that's gonna be a continue of the work that we're gonna to have to do in public health um, forever. Thank you. And then a follow-up question to that. So you had began touching on the healthcare system and how it wasn't fully connected with public health. So your background is in medicine and as a physician, how do you use this background in medicine to apply to public health? Where do these fields intersect and how do you see this relationship changing in the future? You know, I, I, I think of, uh, of uh, health as a spectrum with um, from prevention to wellness. And, you know, the US is the only nation that has this artificial divide between public health and medicine, um, you know, and healthcare and it is artificial. Um, you know, vaccinations are a individual medical intervention until you hit herd immunity, then it's the public health intervention. Um, you know, um, firearm violence is a individual issue with someone is shot. Um, but, um, you know, uh, mass shootings um, um, becomes a public health issue, not only because of the number of people that are injured, because of the mental health trauma that it, it portrays around the whole community. Um, so we have to think of these kinds of things as um, a continuum. 
And when people get sick, the data doesn't just come from the healthcare system. We have surveillance data and information from public health. Those two systems have to communicate to one another. They have to you know, integrate their activities uh, in an organized way to, um, to give you situational awareness of what's going on. You know, doing the anthrax letters, um, the, um, we always knew that the first cases that we would see would be from an astute clinician. And it turns out that was the case, at least in the Washington DC area. We um, know that environmental um, threats to our health uh, are often picked up by uh, astute clinicians who have patients that are coming into the hospital with degrees of illness and someone helps connect the dots. Uh, West Nile virus, of course, um, not only was um, a astute clinician um, on the healthcare side, but it was actually picked up by a astute veterinarian um, and a zoologist um, who um, saw that the birds were dying and made the connection of the birds. And then they worked with the health people to figure out the connection for these strange neurological diseases they were having in, um, in New York and people. Uh, and they were able to connect the dots. So um, not only do the public health system in as the way we think of it in the United States and the healthcare delivery system um, have to um, coordinate what we're doing, but there are other entities in our society, um, our veterinary community, our business community, um, our social welfare community. We're gonna to have to work with all those groups if we're really going to do the kinds of things to actually improve our health. And that clearly means addressing upstream issues to address the social determinants of health. Dr. Benjamin, um, I wanna ask you about, um, you know, as we know, like public health often is under-recognized until a public health emergency occurs. And we, we might know as well that public health affects us in the day-to-day and -day, our day-to-day -day lives. So my question is, in 2016, President Obama appointed you to the National Infrastructure Advisory Council. There has recently been a lot of talks of a large infra infrastructure bill making its way through Congress and hopefully on its way to President Biden. Can you discuss the role of public health in the national infrastructure? It seems like public health would be easily looked over when thinking about infrastructure, but there's more to it than just roads and bridges. Yeah, you know, the, the issue here is that if it hurts people, it kills people's ours. Um, and um, as um, Sam pointed out, I, you know, I, I was, I was in medicine, I was an ER doc, I trained in internal medicine, and I did emergency medicine. Um, and um, automobile crashes, um, an issue. Um, you know, we not only have to have um, automobiles and, and, and vehicles that are safe, but they have to be on safe roads. And we now we know that our infrastructure itself is crumbling. Um, and so automobile crashes are a health issue, and we should care about the infrastructure, the roads that are our, our, um, our people transfers and our automobiles transfers. Uh, we need to make sure that we're building our um, transportation systems to move people um, and not necessarily to help, you know, get people from point A to point B uh, and not necessarily just get cars and buses from point A to point B. They need to be able to do that safely. Uh, we need to think about how we build um, communities that are not bifurcated by 
um, transportation system so that people can engage. You know, we have a lot too many communities where the kids can see the school, but they can't ride their bike to school because of the way we design the communities. We know that we um, have um, lead in our water systems. Flint was um, certainly the, the, the issue that got the most attention, um, not only because they had a, an old water system um, and they um, you know, use a water source that wasn't appropriate, but then they got into political wranglings. Um, but that also points out the fact that our basic infrastructure in all of our central cities are old, whether it's New York, Chicago, LA, those water systems are old. They have, they have old lead line pipes. Um, the Biden um, administration wants to replace all the lead line pipes. Um, it will do an enormous um, benefit to our community to get lead out of our water systems. We know lead is a neurotoxin. Um, it, it causes tremendous um, brain damage in kids. Um, and, it, um, and while folk, people are focused a lot on the lead paint in on older homes and changing the windows to get the lead paint out of the, you know, the window sills and things. Um, we also have lead in our water systems that we wanna, um, wanna take out. And one of the best ways to do that is, is, is to replace all the lead lines uh, in the country. So that's also something we need to do. Um, so the connection between this infrastructure and our health, um, uh, we're locked at the hip. Uh, we also have to think about things like broadband, um, you know, being able to adequately communicate with people. Um, um, now, again, APHA, we were, we, we were able to, we live in an urban, generally urban suburban setting. So broadband wasn't so much a big deal um, for us immediately and for our association and most, most of my staff. Um, there were some, a few people we had to actually boost their, their Wi-Fi capacity. But there were many people in the state of Maryland, as they were in other parts of the country, when their kids had to go home um, and do remote learning, um, could not do so because they didn't have adequate access to Wi-Fi. Well, we know that education and lack of education and poor education results in poor health outcomes. Um, and so, again, broadband is a, a public health intervention uh, because it, it allows you to do many things in society, which ultimately improve your health. Physicians on the medical care side, uh, we kind of tinkered with telemedicine um, in, in many ways. And yet um, it was clearly shown that uh, telemedicine, which had been around for quite some time, uh, but they were hassling over the, how to pay for it and who should pay for it. Well, that went away during the COVID outbreak. And so telemedicine is also something that's here to stay. Um, I think that for me, the biggest infrastructure issue with a couple in the public health world, one of the labs, making sure our labs are up to speed, our public health laboratories, um, but also our, um, our technology capacity. We still have public health that is sending paper documents around by fax. Um, and, you know, if you want to have a good data-driven um, um, system, you've got to be able to move data very, very quickly. Um, when I was the health officer in Maryland, we had just begun to um, put um, computers in our health departments, um, in our EPI programs. In fact, let's show you how, how dated this was. I mean, the, my, my boss 
um, order every health department to get a one single computer. In those days, it was five or 6,000 bucks. And the big cost was the, the lattice charges to move data from point A to point B. So those people who were on the um, other side of our, um, the Eastern shore of Maryland um, had to, um, it was very expensive for them to move data to Baltimore um, because they had to go across the, the river. Um, and um, that, that was a problem. And they had several waterways they had to transverse. And we were not using Wi-Fi. We didn't have the, um, the um, uh, cloud services in those days. Um, but what was interesting, I remember we had um, a big 700 plus person foodborne outbreak um, in um, Southern um, Maryland. And the fact that my folks could email information from the, health, the local health department to the state health department, my epidemiologist, they could have intelligent conversations without the person printing that data out hopping in a car, driving two and a half hours with assuming it wasn't the rush hour to come in and sit down with their epi colleagues um, and then get it back in the car after they've had a couple hour conversation and driving to two and a half. And by now it's probably three and a half hours because now it's rush hour back, back, to, uh, back to their offices. Um, made an made a enormous difference in our ability to rapidly communicate, rapidly make decisions. I remember doing the anthrax letters, our ability to share information um, with one another about cases and about people that we were suspected of, of maybe having anthrax. Um, good news is we didn't have um, many of them. Um, but uh, the point is, we, we would not know. We would have been driving all around the state. You know, Maryland is not a, not a large state like Texas um, but is or California, but it's still a big state. It still takes you a few hours to transfer to state. And um, it, 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 it's, a, it's a big issue. So infrastructure, surveillance technology, IT technology, laboratories in public health um, are, are gonna be important for us as part of any infrastructure effort as we go forward. So thank you, Dr. Benjamin, for your um, answer there. I'd like to shift the discussion now to education, um, public health education specifically. So what changes um, have you seen public health education programs undergo in recent years and how might these changes um, continue? So at the beginning of the world, <laughs> uh, the MPH was actually a degree that uh, physicians got. It was kind of the management degree, the MBA for doctors. Um, it kind of did the things that um, a health administrator needed to have that you kind of didn't get in medical school. So there was a mental health, uh, you had to have mental health, you had to have epidemiology, you had to have health statistics, you had to have health administration um, um, as, as examples of the other core courses that uh, people thought were, were very important um, for you to have. Um, and then of course, environmental health. Um, was, was important because those are just things you didn't get as a, as a doc in medical school. Uh, of course, MPH has now become a degree that um, a much broader group of people get. Nurses, people go to, as you know, just get an MPH um, because they love public health. Uh, and the vast majority of our workforce is um, uh, people who have MPHs. And, um, but now it's no longer just a graduate uh, degree. We now have undergraduate people um, who are getting training in public health, either as 
uh, an undergraduate degree in public health, or they're taking public health courses. Um, some of the more common ones include environmental health or global health um, as examples of courses that some of the undergraduates will get or kind of an introduction to public health. What, what it does is I think give people a broader understanding of, of public health. I think it will make us um, better understood uh, as a discipline. Um, I believe that, you know, having Supreme Court justices who um, have um, undergraduate degrees in public health or who have an MPH um, will um, help them better understand um, the intersection between the law um, and health. I think it'll help them make better decisions um, because I think they will see a much more holistic view of the world than um, the very narrow view you have when you um, are simply looking at a particular issue um, on, only on a legal basis. I think engineers uh, and architects who have um, even an undergraduate degree in public health, again, um, as they're designing communities and thinking about how they build, are much more likely to want to build in a more healthy, holistic way because they understand that there are, it's important for them to build you know, a beautiful building that you know, um, people love to look at um, and love to, to be in, but there are ways to do it that also enhance our health. You know, there are ways to build a building that can enhance our mental health. You know, no longer will we have people building buildings where um, all the offices are kind of on the inside and you don't have windows. And, you know, we know that the lack of windows and people who are not engaged in the public um, may not do as well as people who have um, green space and places they can go and places where they can congregate together in a place in a building with other other workers. Again, human engagement is very important in our society. Um, and, you know, building buildings that enhance that kind of engagement would be something very important. And, you know, I, you know, having um, um, a range of public service uh, employees that again, in their undergraduate years, learned about public health, um, I think they'll look at the world very differently. And I think we're much more likely to be a more healthy society because of it. Thank you, Dr. Benjamin. As a follow-up question to that, hopefully we see a new appreciation for the field of public health um, as we move throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. How can we as public health students take advantage of this and what new fields of study may have been opened as a result of the pandemic? You know, I think we're gonna see more and more people want to be interested in public health preparedness for sure. Um, and, and, I, and I look at, I look at that broadly. So I, I, I'm looking that we're going to have a whole new crop of disease detectors, epidemiologists, um, 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 I think are going to be a premium. People are going to be looking at how to do that. I think we're going to have people that want to be more involved in um, data and metrics, you know, uh, understanding, um, not just being um, um, modelers per se, but actually um, people in a whole range of fields, whether it's maternal child health or um, um, injury uh, as examples, are, are gonna wanna really engage more and more um, in public health. And so I see the field um, growing in a variety of ways. Um, 
I think we're going to see a lot more people um, doing work and research around health equity. You know, there was a time when people didn't think of people who did uh, the social sciences as serious researchers. You know, if you weren't in a lab working with rats, you weren't a serious researcher. If test tubes and chemicals weren't involved, you were not a serious researcher. Um, well, that, those days are over. Um, our our um, um, sociology um, colleagues, our public health colleagues doing behavior research, um, the folks that are doing the, the basic public health practice research, public health practice or public health systems research, um, uh, very clear that uh, we need to do more of that kind of research. You know, we, we, um, we have some understanding of how to get people to do um, things that are in their best interest, but we don't have nearly enough science that tells us how do we get people to wear a mask how do we get more people to wash their hands? How do we get people to follow public health guidance? Um, what's the best way for us to do um, community resilience? So we build communities so they can bounce back when these kind of tragic, tragic things happen. Um, you know, what's the adaptation that's necessary um, um, for climate change? Um, you know, um, what are some of the, the preventive things that we need to do in the future to um, reduce some of these um, disease outbreaks that we have. We, we've got work to do. So I do think that the future of public health is bright, um, but it's in the research area. Um, it's in the practice area. Uh, it's in the, um, um, the full spectrum of, of things that we know. Um, communication, risk communication, um, how to engage people in social media. How do we as public health how do we in the public health community um, get our messages out there so that we can address misinformation and disinformation in an effective way to give people the knowledge that they meet, need to make informed choices? Um, how do they identify what a trusted messenger is? There, there's work that has to be done in those areas because at the end of the day, we used to, you know, the guilds used to own the information. You know, you didn't, you know, even if you want, if you want to look up um, um, information around um, appendicitis, you had to go find a medical textbook um, to find out the medical aspect of it. And then you had to go find a surgical textbook to look at the surgical procedure part of it. And then you had to put it together to really get a good picture of what, how to manage an appendicitis. Um, well, right now all you gotta do is you go to Dr. Google. <laughs> you, you Google it and you can find that information um, you can get that just in time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and by the way, you can get bad information where people tell you that there is a cure um, for that um, while you're sick and you're trying to figure out what you got and you really need to be going to a doctor because um, you really need surgery. Um, but people are Googling and finding all kinds of misinformation and tragically bad things happen when that happens. And we saw that with COVID. Um, and we're going to continue to see that until we uh, in the public health community really engage more effectively in the in cyberspace. Um, Dr. Benjamin, following um, your point of view as well um, regarding communication, how can we um, make sure that when we communicate that mask is important, um, we don't politicize it and make it as a public health um, issue? rather than a political issue? 
Yeah, you know, most people, most people that are politicizing know they're politicizing. Um, you can't inadvertently do it. Uh, I think the first thing you want to do is you be, be right. Know your facts. Um, and um, tell people what you know. Tell them what you don't know. Um, anticipate what their questions are so that you can give them the information that they need. Um, if you aren't sure what they want to know, ask them and then directly answer that question that they've asked you at, at the very minimal. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that say, well, I don't want to take the vaccine. And then people, they, they, they jump in right away and they try to convince them that taking the shot is important. Now, the first question is, well, what are your concerns? And you need to start by addressing their concerns. Um, and so I think that's, that's gonna be very important. It's also important in you trying to build coalitions. You know, um, we often go into communities with um, a great idea on how to improve the health of the community. And the good news is we quite often do sit down early on with community members, um, but we also go in there to lecture them and tell them why they need to get something done. Again, what you need to do is need to go in the community asking what they need. Um, if you if you got a community which you're trying to uh, address um, obesity or diabetes, and you want to get people down to ideal body weight, and one of the ways you want to do that is getting them out walking, um, and you sit down with the community, and the community tells you, well, we would love to walk, but it ain't safe to walk. It's not safe to walk because we don't have sidewalks, or our sidewalks are broken, or the lights are out, or we don't have uh, good community policing. So um, we're afraid to go out because the police will stop us. Um, or the playground is broken and no one's taking care of that. If you don't address those things first, you're never gonna get a walking program. So you have to ask them what they need and engage those communities where they are. Um, and again, you have to do it early. You know, you don't walk in there with your plan and your research model. You walk in and you talk about the issues and then you bring them in at the very beginning of the conversation so they can be part of it. And then when you're done, you don't get in your car and leave. Once you decide you're going to engage communities, you, know, you ought to be consistent. You ought to be there for the long haul because communities have long memories and they remember when people came in, took their assets, took their ideas, published their papers and didn't come back until it was time to do another research project. Um, because they also remember because the sidewalks are still broken, the lights are still out. Um, you don't have good public policing. Um, their kids are still dying from gunshot wounds. Um, There's still food deserts in their community. So not only do they have good memories, but they have good memories because the conditions in which they live haven't changed. And so you've done very little. So if you're going to do those kinds of things, which are, of course, important to do, you know, you, you got to be there for the long haul. So Dr. Benjamin, um... Following that question, you mentioned essentially community capacity, um, building that community capacity and how important that is. Um, and so one thing that came to mind, when you said start early and maybe not necessarily bringing in other individuals to lecture um, community members or those who have some type of influence to be able to build that community capacity. Um, community health workers, that's one, one group of individuals that have come to mind for me. So what is your viewpoint on the community health worker? Um, a lot of times 
people have never heard of a community health worker and the work that they are able to do within communities. Um, and so can you speak to speak just a little bit about that um, and the role of the community health worker? Well, community health workers are very important. Um, they are, um, you know, they, they come by a variety of, of, of names. Um, there is actually now a community health workers association. Um, and they, they're certainly working very hard to, to professionalize the, the, the practice and the, the discipline. Um, these are individuals who generally are from the community. They may have a variety of skills. Um, they may come from a variety of names, outreach workers. Um, again, at the beginning of the earth, um, when we had nurses, they were community health nurses that went into communities. They banged on doors, they checked on pregnant women. They um, worked with people who had mental health um, challenges. They um, uh, addressed people who were um, homeless. They were um, people who were shut-ins, particularly our seniors. Um, and then over time, we still have some community health nurses, of course, um, but we've now um, also utilized many individuals who, um, uh, in the, who are in the community. Uh, and they may not have uh, a lot of, of, of formal education, meaning um, you know, beyond um, secondary school. Um, many of them, um, they certainly graduated from high school. They may have um, um, had a substance abuse problem. They may have been in jail. Um, and they are back in the community and they um, know the community. Um, they may have, there may be someone who is, uh, got a baccalaureate degree in community development, for example, um, who's now working for a community agency. And the point is that there's a range of people with a range of academic backgrounds, with a range of skills, with a range of life experiences. But, but what, what the unifying thing is, is these are people who know the hood. They can find Johnny on Thursday. They can find, they know Mrs. Jones. They can go into communities that are pretty tough. Um, and the people in those communities trust them. They will tell those, in the, they will tell the, the people that live in those communities things they won't tell anybody else. They're often an early warning system of unrest in the community. They um, um, are a real gem and Health departments um, hire them, hospitals and groups are now beginning to hire more and more community health workers. Um, but they're a real asset to the community because, because they know the community and they have their trusted messengers for that community. Um, we don't, we don't um, use them enough and we certainly don't pay them enough um, for the kinds of services that they offer to the community. Um, but we need to use more and more of them as we go forward. What advice would you give to you know, upcoming public health professionals um, moving forward in the field? You know, we talked about what skills and what areas are most important, but for the young public health professionals, Sam, myself, Ibrahim, um, what advice would you give to, to those professionals? I always tell people to try to really understand yourself. So, you know, it's important that you um, sit down and think about what your, your assets are, what your skills are, what you like to do. Um, but I also tell people to first make a list of all the things they don't like to do, what they're not good at. And, um, 
And then, but a better understanding of themselves, try to put together a list of the kinds of things that you, you know, type of jobs you don't want to do, the kinds of things that just, these, these are not on my list of, 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 of high priorities. And make that list, it's usually a relatively short list, but I tell people, put that list together and then don't do those things. You'll be amazed at the number of times people, um, as they're thinking about their career, um, come across an opportunity, which they absolutely know is not something they want to do, but they explore it. They spend the time doing it, thinking about it. Um, and sometimes they even take those jobs and then they discover, yeah, I was right. I don't want to do this. Um, make a list of things you don't want to do and don't do them. And then the things in which you want to do, do them. Um, public health is fun. Um, and enjoy doing it, you know, get a job. First of all, get, you know, get, get a good education, you know, get really smart and, and become an expert in something. Doesn't matter how big an area or how small an area, but you wanna be able to say, yep, I know everything there is to know about this item and maintain that knowledge base. You'll be amazed at how that'll come back to you. And, and then, you know, do stuff that, that you enjoy doing. Um, you know, work um, doesn't have to be work. Work can be fun. It's going to be hard, but it can be fun. And, you know, the, 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 um, the honor and privilege that you have to serve and help the public improve their health, it really is an honor and a privilege. And so I just encourage people to, to do it in a way that, that, is, um, that they're enjoying it. And when it stops being fun, um, you know, do something else. But enjoy doing what you're doing because um, the older I get, the, the more I understand that, that life is short and that opportunities um, present themselves and you will, not, you will not know an opportunity is there um, uh, unless you have a sense of what you like to do. Um, because a lot of times opportunities present themselves in the most interesting ways. I have, with maybe one, or, one exception, I quite frankly have never really gone out looking for a job. You know, after I got out of medical school, I um, um, had to go in the army. The army had army scholarships, so I went in the army. Um, and uh, when I got out of the army, I did look for a job. I was my first real time looking for a job. I ended up being um, chief of community medicine at the city hospital. It was a great job. I enjoyed it, um, but being commissioner of health in DC, the mayor called me going to the state health department, the governor's staff called me, um, you know, going to run the EMS system in DC, the mayor's staff called me. Um, but I was, I knew what I wanted to do because I had lots of other calls too. And I, and I didn't do things that I didn't want to do. I didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a Medicaid managed care medical director. That was not going to be on my list. I didn't want to tell people, no, you know, we're going to, we're going to deny you care. That was not, you know, and I thought, I seriously thought about that. Um, that's just an example. Do do what you think is fun. Well, I was going to ask uh, what you know. What was your your rallying cry, your call to action for for the next public health leaders? But I think you just actually answered that. So, so thank you. So I guess in closing, I I'd just like to ask. Um, you know, you spoke a little bit about the importance of collaboration, and and you are you know you yourself are are a renowned public health communicator. So. Uh, you know, what are the skills and qualities that tomorrow's public health leaders need to have? You know, um, 
be, be a be principal, be a principal leader. Um, compromise is okay, but appeasement is not. Um, understand what your values are and maintain your values. Um, they can be progressive, they can be conservative, they can be, um, you know, whatever you want them to be, but figure out what your values are and live by them and try to be consistent. Now we all change and we, you know, as we go older, as we have different experiences, we, we, we make different decisions, um, but your core values are your core values, you know, um, treat people the way that, you know, you want others to treat you. And, um, you know, the, the way that your kindergarten teacher told you to play, play with others well in the playground, those rules still apply. Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for your words and, and your advice. We really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. Listen, thank you. I was glad I could be here. Thank you.